Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back. This is part two of our discussion of George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. Okay, so you flip the record over, put the needle down on side two, and get hit right away with What is Life? Well, there's a pop jingle if I ever heard one. (laughs) You know what's funny about the research on this one is that everybody's talking about what an R&B or Motown-inflected record it is. I never heard it, and I'm not hearing it now that they've pointed it out. And just because it has a guitar riff and some horns... It doesn't sound like a Motown record. It's like ultra poppy. It's almost power pop. Well, Chris, I would say to you that in I Me Mind, George talks about this, and I think some of what he says there might be revelatory, or at the very least kind of explain what you're talking about. He says, What is Life was written for Billy Preston in 1969. I oh, wrote it. Okay. I wrote it very quickly, 15 minutes or a half hour maybe, on the way to Olympic Studios, London, when I was producing one of his albums. Mm. Because of the situation at the session, it seemed too difficult to go in there and say, hey, I wrote this catchy pop song while Billy was playing his funky stuff. I did it myself later. So, it was at the very least written with somebody who was steeped in, you know, R&B, like... He's writing it for an R&B musician, Right. Or an R&B record, but then recognized himself. Like, right. nah, this is pretty poppy <laughs> for this context. Yeah. Oh, this would have been a, a Beatles single. Easy. If yeah. this was on a Beatles album, this would have been... I mean, how, how could they have passed this one up? Which is funny that it didn't really light the world on fire the way My Sweet Lord did. I mean, it performed pretty well, but it didn't, you know, top the charts. Um, but I think in recent years especially, it's been given new life. There was an instance where it was used, I remember, in some John Krasinski like rom-com, and mm-hmm. it got a new music video recently, which was really fun, I guess, in the last five years or so. So, people are finding this song because it is very catchy, very hooky. Now, my quibble with this, if I was to have a quibble, would be, I think it goes on a little too long. Um, I think it would be silly love songs level pop gold if you just nixed one of those verses and one of those chords i think it just goes on a bit too long for me personally but it's hard to resist it's catchy 
that maybe intersects with my quibble, which is, could it go on a, a little longer if there were a little more to it? Sure. Sure. Like the lyrics are very skimpy. Yeah. It's, I wouldn't call it lightweight, but it's certainly like <laughs> what I wrote is if the Beatles weren't kicking themselves for ignoring George's pop commercial viability before, uh, they must have certainly been doing it now because it's not designed to, you know, turn off your mind and relax and float downstream. It's, it's a love song to God or whatever. And uh, he does it with the trappings of the hits of the day, I think, which were, you know, not necessarily always the most heavyweight in the world. Yeah, it feels very much as if it could be a romantic love song, and I'm sure many people read it that way, you know. I think you can read it that way. For sure. I mean, and it, it has the virtue of, you know, even if one thinks the lyrics might be a bit lightweight, that musicianship certainly isn't. I mean, I was listening to this, just listening to that bass line into the horn bridge at the beginning, and it's just so perfect. And, you know, I think the bass is actually a big highlight of this track. Major props to Klaus Vormann for that yeah but uh, you know this goes to something else we were talking about earlier in the episode where it's another example to me of the theory that the Beatles sound was actually within george harrison more than in the lennon mccartney team Mm -hmm. because you know give me another example of a more beatly sounding cut from the ex-beatles era than this one i mean it's this the tracks george co-wrote with ringo like this is to me, extremely beatle stuff. I think there might be one coming up on this very album. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but not the lyrics. I mean, this has both the lyrics and the, the melodic style. What I feel So listening to the demos for all of this album, but this one in particular, you know, I found myself thinking yet again, kind of standing by my assessment from earlier in the episode that, no, I'm not dying for the stripped down version of this album. When you listen to the demo and to the early takes of this song, this song is all about the giant arrangement. That's part of its core. I think you could get a very good single album version of it boiled down. You know, there are songs that I think surpass for me the production, like the quality of the song surpasses the production. It's funny, when I was talking to Ryan about Nick Lowe, he had read a quote that said, Nick Lowe never performs I Love the Sound of Breaking Glass when he does his solo acoustic sets. And so the person asked him, why not? And he's like, well, it's it's nothing. It's a, If you were to sing that on, a, on an acoustic guitar, it would just be, literally be me saying over and over again, I love the sound of breaking glass. Like, it's not anything without the the boogie, you know, on the on the bottom. So, yeah, this is kind of like that, where you would never have a George, like, acoustic version of this that could hold a candle to the ornate production that <laughs> right, we get right. on this. I mean, I think the, the cellos and stuff... Uh, I think they're quite lovely on this. And in the end, one of my favorite aspects of the song, this one's for me, not like Wawa where I would have loved a a grittier boiled down rock and roll Wawa, as opposed to the big sweeping arrangement. But in this, I think it succeeds where Wawa fails for me personally. Yeah. I mean, the sweeping arrangement here 
It really pushes the song along and you hear it in your head when you think of the song. It's not a case where it's just a record. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, and there's not a song there. There is a song there. I mean, we encounter a lot of those on Take It Away where <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's nothing to say about this except to talk about the record itself. But yeah, this is a good song, but a little underdone as a song. And yeah, an acoustic version would reveal that, actually. I think with other Beatle input, you would have maybe seen it take off a bit higher. They probably would have cut it down from 424 to a tasteful three and change, perhaps. But this is one where, yeah, you could make an argument yet yeah, that that's where that studio atmosphere, that John and Paul input might have helped. But you know what? At the end of the day, I mean, it's a catchy hit record. And George, George here proves yet again he can do that with the best of them. So moving on to some Bob Dylan, if not for you. How do you feel about the Dylan version of this, or versions insofar as you know them? Well, I know that my ear is accustomed to George doing this, so Mm -hmm. it always sounds weird to me to hear the Dylan original, (laughs) or the Dylan versions, as you say. Um, Yeah. And Dylan's is, I think, a bit more pained, because, you know, that was about him splitting, you know, with his, I mean, or, or a love song to his then wife, who he was sort of living a happy family life early in the late 60s, very early 70s, but then starting to maybe drift away from a bit. So I don't know. I I always find Dylan's to be a bit more um, pained, maybe even slightly more like, um, I think at one point in my research, I I heard somebody describe it as vaguely Tex-Mex, which I thought was kind (laughs) of funny. So the new morning version is strange because the melody's barely there but if you listen to the bootleg series version right which i think was if i understand correctly was done at the same sessions it's actually the complete song the melody's there and there's even a hint of what will become the george kind of a premonition of what will become the george slide guitar riff that's so iconic in the song yeah the new morning version i don't know what happened there why he chose to release the one where where the melody is more or less indiscernible apparently the melody was already written if not for you babe i couldn't find the door couldn't even see the floor i'd be sad and blue not for you If not for you Maybe I'd lay awake all night Wait for the morning light To shine in through 
but it would not be new if not for you. The bootleg version is slowed down, and it does have a very different feeling, but it is more complete sounding than what's on New Morning, which sounds like kind of a like they're riffing on it, like they're jamming on it almost. and hawed a lot about this song it's it's an interesting one in which there's the, the original version which i guess was i don't i don't remember when that was cut but george was there for the recording of the second attempt of dylan's version and that was on may 1st 1970 but neither of them felt it was right for release so that's the bootlegs you're talking about so i guess that they heard those and even though they knocked the socks off whatever engineer was at the session they felt nah let's let's not put this out because while it's interesting to hear those two superstars together i guess they felt that there wasn't enough there it was too primordial to work with so dylan wound up cutting actually a third take of it following this one in june that wound up on his album later new morning and then george's version was cut shortly after he cut the dylan one in may at emi studios you know so peter frampton plays on the george version which is cool Ringo is on tambourine, which is hilarious. And this is the coolest tidbit I found on this. There's an Olivia Newton-John version of this track, which hit number one. (laughs) You understand that I'm a huge Olivia Newton-John fan, and this is my chance to play some Olivia Newton-John on the podcast. So (laughs) here it comes. I love her. She's such an underrated singer, for one thing. But the material she works with is very good. She works with this producer-songwriter named John Farrar. And he just did golden work for a good decade or a little more than a decade with her, you know, from the early 70s to the early 80s. So this record is pretty much modeled directly on George's version, including the slide guitar. Yeah, and this song, I mean, that slide is so integral. I mean, it's so such a crucial part of the song. It's almost like the organ in Whiter Shade of Pale, where it's like this, for me, the song is, uh, it lives and breathes by that slide. Because it's a vague call and response, at least at, or in the melody and the, at the beginning of the track anyway. Well, to finish my thought about the Olivia Newton-John, John Farrar basically brought the record to Olivia Newton-John 
the George Harrison record and said, we ought to do this. And she was like, nah, not my kind of song. (laughs) But but I guess they insisted and ended up being her first big hit and the title track of her first album. Amazing. Yeah. I had no idea actually at all about any of that before we did this. (laughs) Do you know that she started out as kind of a quasi country singer? No. Yeah. That's what this was. She was sort of, I mean, there were always soft rockish things on her albums from pretty early on, but she was selling herself as this sort of British Australian country singer for the first few years of her career. Oh, I had no idea. Well, when we do the Olivia podcast, uh, we'll, get into, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into it. <laughs> Another interesting thing about this track was that it was rehearsed for possible inclusion with Bob by George at the concert for Bangladesh rehearsals. Ah, yes. Which is pretty funny. And they didn't wind up doing it, but that would have been an amazing performance had they. I wanted to talk a moment about George's singing. Oh, okay. Because it's not always the highlight of a George solo recording for me. But on this record, All Things Was Passed, and on this track in particular, I think the rasp and the genuine longing that his voice conveys is really, really effective. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a really lovely example, this song, of what he was capable of as a vocalist. It's also mixed in just the right spot. You know, his voice is not too high in the mix, but amidst the wall of sound, George's vocals find kind of their sweet spot. Mm-hmm. One of many, like in a church choir or something. And I think it, it's a, a particularly strong way to portray his voice. Do you like his vocals more when there are fewer instruments around him? Because this is a slightly less produced track, a little bit more like a country record. I think it depends on the song, and it depends on what he's trying to do with his voice. I think I find his Smokey Robinson impression, let's say, ineffective. (laughs) Mm. Um, And he does that from time to time in the 70s, and I don't ever quite like it. I prefer when he's coming in with that sort of guttural, not trying to stretch too high. Not We're not talking you or something like that. We're talking something maybe down here um, and then mm. blended into the background. I think that's when he's most effective because mm. I wouldn't necessarily highlight it, but I also don't think it's a bad voice. I just think it works better as a, an accompaniment to his musicianship as opposed to the other way around. I mean, I'm thinking of tracks like Something you know, where there's a little more room for him in the track and he can be a little more delicate. He doesn't have to wail, but then he wails very effectively on my sweet Lord. So yeah, it depends on the song for me. I don't know. I, it's, I think he was in a forever search to find his voice, frankly. I mean, I don't know if he ever truly wind up, wind up finding it. I guess you could make an argument by the end, he knew what it was, you know, by like, I'm talking like cloud nine and beyond, or even maybe even Gontrapo and beyond. He had mm-hmm. sort of found what he felt his voice was going to be. But he did a lot of experimenting in the 70s, which to me come with some mixed results. Well, I think on George Harrison 79, he starts to settle. Like, because I think. Um, yeah, you're right. Here you're comes right. the moon, you know, and blow away, actually. Those are more delicate vocals, but the arrangement leaves room for him to be delicate and they can just turn him up a bit. Yeah. Almost like a Paul Simon vocal. Yeah. And I also wanted to just mention the drumming and the piano on this track. Just beautiful, beautiful moment to moment. Portion to portion, all of it is just gives this hammering at one side of things, but also kind of a delicate, like sort of light honky tonk thing that is just absolutely gorgeous to me, right in my sweet spot. So, like, this is one of my favorite tracks on the record. Why are you still crying? Your pain is now through. 
So speaking of Bob Dylan, kind of paired with If Not For You, we have Behind That Locked Door. Yeah. Which is a song about Bob Dylan and about his convalescence from his accident and from his time of relative solitude. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it was written when Bob was playing at the Isle of Wight Festival soon after his Nashville Skyline album. George said he wrote it about him and as as an excuse to do a country tune with pedal steel. (laughs) I think this is the one with Pete Drake on it, right? Yeah. A bunch of them have him. Yeah. The lyrics for this song were written by George on a 45 sleeve. That's kind of fun for me. I love that. <laughs> I love when you're, when it's not just regular <laughs> it's notebook beautiful, paper. beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It looks great. I love the picture of it in I Me Mine. But good Lord, that opening, that why are you still crying? Your pain is now through. It's just, that's a good George vocal too, right there. One of the handful of triple time songs on here. It's a, it's a lovely waltz. And yeah, it's George sort of watching him from backstage and thinking, come on, man, you can pull it together. (laughs) (laughs) The people need you, man. You're Bob Dylan. Yeah, it's a a sweet message. Taken in totality, like the the track on its own, is a track that just makes me so angry that some of these George songs, not that this one was necessarily pitched, but that some of these George songs were just completely glossed over for Beatle inclusion. You know, you hear a song like this, and maybe it wasn't going to be a single, but this is, I think it's sublime in spots and and competes, in my view, with almost any solo album cut Lennon McCartney track. It's just really, really pretty. And again, it just... It's a beautiful melody. It just makes me frustrated that, (laughs) that he was in that position and unable to transcend in that moment through circumstances we've already talked about to death. But it's just one of these tracks where I'm just like, man, this guy was on fire, on fire. It's country inflected, but not truly country, despite the steel guitar. This is two songs in a row that are fairly minimally produced. It's really just a recording of a band. So not a wall of sound. A couple in a row with no wall of sound, you know? Yeah, and especially highlighted as such by that 2021 or 2020, whatever they call it, mix of the song, because they really tried to boil that down anyway. But when you hear it, especially, you know, without a lot of the extra little flourishes, this is another track where you, I hear things like the bass doing a lot of behind the scenes work to keep interest sustained throughout the track, little flourishes, little driving moments, not, not like Paul's playing, but a bit more workmanlike. Like a mm-hmm. like a bricklayer laying down your interest in the track as they go from <laughs> point to point. Yeah. Not Paul, who's like lead guitar soloing on the bass the entire song kind of thing. <laughs> just a, another example of just the, the supreme musicianship on this record. Should we move on to Let It Down?
we were talking about the most Beatles sounding songs. This might be one of the most George Harrison sounding songs. Oh. This is the most all things must pass sounding song <laughs> on all things must pass. I mean, this is really the sound of this album to me. The contrast with the hard rock chorus and the beautiful major seventh chord based verse and the yearning you were talking about. I yeah. do. I do. Yeah. It's oh. so beautiful. Yeah. Maybe George's best vocal on the record. Wonder what it is expected to see. That really uh, raspy kind of brutal rock voice, you know. It's really, really strong. It's one of the few cuts not talked about in um, his I Me Mind book. But it's a song written in 68, actually, and, and was offered to the Beatles. Fucking hell. Offered to the Beatles during the Get Back sessions, but not taken up. What's cool is that George offered this on the first day of Get Back filming at Twickenham before Paul and Ringo had even arrived. And there's audio of Lennon struggling with the chords, <laughs> which is those major sevenths and stuff that George, you know, used on the songs that he wrote for Dylan. I learned today, actually, that uh, maybe I'd learned this somewhere else, but I was reminded today, rather, that he used to call them naughty chords because he made them up and he felt it was sort of him, <laughs> him cheating. <laughs> yeah. Theorists can always tell you what the chord is. <laughs> sure. <laughs> It's one of my favorite George songs. I think because it is so heavy, it feels maybe one of the heaviest tracks George ever recorded. It sounds like a hard rock tune in parts, which could potentially be the result of the dynamics at play. You get those really soft sections and then the heavy band portions. So yeah. put next to one another, maybe the harder sections seem a little harder than they would without. Yeah. So here we have Gary Brooker on piano. So that's where some of that pretty cool improv piano comes from. Yeah. More banging sound there. Yeah. Gary writes on organ on this one instead of piano. And we have Badfinger on acoustic rhythm guitars here, and we have Eric Clapton. So it's a heck of a band. You know, it's so funny. I think we talked about this before in the show, but he's young at this point when he's recording this record. 27, right? 27. Like Jesus. <laughs> but there's little moments where like young George kind of comes out, and there's a line in this one, looking like I don't care, but I do. And it's a very teenage sentiment but mixed with the maturity of someone who's seen a thing or two he's acknowledging that he's putting on a front and that it's kind of a little secret that he is but i do and that i think goes along with what is the popular interpretation of this song that it is a somewhat erotic free love kind of thing and we do know george had that side of him, you know, where he was, as Paul put it in the Scorsese film, a what does he call him, a, a red-blooded man or something like he, that? He loves Dig. <laughs> <laughs> but as we know, George has had his had his moments with the ladies. It's funny the uh, 2001 reissue of this has a partial re-recording of this track with the original guitar and vocal. And I've just mentioned it because on the note for it, George writes, let your her hang all around me, H-U-R. And he puts inverted commas around her. And I can't hear it now without, well, let your her down all around me. I can't hear it anymore without seeing that in my head, H-U-R. That's, that's so funny. He had that very, he had a different Liverpool accent than the others did, I think. He has that. Take her, be worth. Take her, be worth. <laughs> over the, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, um, beautiful lyrics in this track to talk a bit more about those. Wasting away these moments so heavenly. Should someone be looking at me? And then that brass and the heavy piano drop into the chorus is just so 
it's so strong. It's so in your face, this song. It's um, brash. What do you suppose he means by that? Should someone be looking at me? Is that like, should a doctor look into this? Or what is he saying? There? I think, well... Or is I he would, saying, like, this is like I'm on stage, people should be watching? Or I think he's talking about it being a taste of the material world. Hmm. That he maybe spends some time privately lamenting or concealing, which is armchair psychology. But we know that he was very, you know, he's the Pisces fish, right? He's the two sides stuff, the, the diametrically opposed things. And so he's spending all this time talking about how the flesh is just a motor car and it doesn't matter. And then he's spending the other half of his time doing a bunch of blow and banging anything with a pulse. So, uh, I don't know. (laughs) Someone should be looking at him. (laughs) That's how I interpret it. I love the way he sings that line, by the way. He sings it like, should someone be look at me? If you don't even hear the looking, you just hear, look at me. (laughs) It's cool. It's a pretty one. Which leads, if we're okay to move on, to my... I think my favorite George track of all time. Hey, one of my favorite songs of all time, Run of the Mill. Everyone has choice. We're on the same page this time. I think this is definitely one of my favorites on the album and possibly one of my favorite George songs, too. Great song. Yeah. Can I get this off my chest so it won't burden us as we get going? Please. <laughs> I'm a little bothered by It's You That Decides. Hmm. It's, it's you who decide. It's just straight up bad grammar. <laughs> and there's, there's no reason for it. It's you who decide is the correct grammar on that, not you that decides. It's like, that sounds like one of my, one of my undergrads. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to let it go. But it's not, it's, it's not one of those cases where it's like, oh, he's doing a vernacular thing. Like, I wish you was my friend. I'm going to let that go because that's vernacular. He's doing a thing there. And it's not a thing where he needs it for the rhyme or he needs it for the number of syllables. It's you who decide would work fine and be grammatically correct. Done. I'm done. But it does bug me a little bit. It's the one thing that keeps it from being my all-time favorite George song. Well, thanks. I'll never not notice that anymore. I appreciate that. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> that's what I'm here for, buddy. Well, well here's it. So, speaking to that, one of the things in the research, because we both have read some books in preparing for this, and in his early life, he had a real gripe against school hated it wasn't that he was stupid or couldn't do the work no it's being told what to do and what to read and he hated being told what to do think about just george in general and his politics and his you know tax man and and all these things he hates it when he has been given instructions He, he wants to follow his own path and so it does not surprise me his grammar is not perfect because clearly he was not fine it's fine (laughs) 
giving much of a shit about that. <laughs> I'm just surprised that intuitively he wouldn't have figured that out or that someone wouldn't have pointed it out along the way. But there's so many cases like that in, in uh, the world of rock lyrics. And you let it go is what you do. Yeah, maybe he just didn't like you who. I can see that. You know, I don't know. You who decide. Yeah, that sounds a little awkward. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the lyrics of this, it's about Paul. He says in the I Me Mind book, I like the words of Run of the Mill. It was the first song I ever wrote that looked like a poem on paper, whereas most of them don't seem like much until you put the lyric with the tune. It's like the North of England thing, you know, like trouble at the mill. It was when Apple was getting crazy. Ringo wanted it blue, John wanted it white, Paul wanted it green, and I wanted it orange. Paul was falling out with us all and going around Apple office saying, you're no good. Everybody was just incompetent. The Spanish Inquisition sketch, he says in parentheses. It was that period, the problem of partnerships. And it's interesting he references that because one of the telltale signs that Paul was serious about feeling estranged from the Beatles was when he stopped showing up at Apple office. Cause normally he was there barking at people <laughs> and you hear a lot of accounts of this, not maybe he was inclined to, you know, maybe he was justified regardless. He's very hands-on. And so Paul being hands-on obviously rubs George the wrong way as we've seen <laughs> in the past. And it's just unfortunate that it came to that place with their relationship because it's clear George really does love Paul, but there was just a lot of friction there toward the end of the Beatles. Yeah, I think the harshest lyric here is, only you'll arrive at your own made end with no one but yourself to be offended. Ugh. It's you that decides. Yeah. Oh my God. That's very, how do you sleep too? It's more subtle, but it's the same, like, don't you see what you're sowing here? It's what how do you sleep would be if Lennon had tacked <laughs> or wasn't a child about it. Well, but. if Lennon had tacked, he wouldn't be Lennon. <laughs> no one around you will carry the blame for you. No one around you will love you today and throw it all away tomorrow. Rise another day for you to realize me or send me down again. So I want to read a couple other of these. No one around you will carry the blame for you. No one around you will love you today and throw it all away. He's also, I think, they're saying that even though that he's taking issue with Paul, that they're basically family. At least that's how I take that stanza. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, when you rise, another day for you to realize me or send me down again. Mm. Jesus, that's really like, I'm here. Or are you going to look down at me and just make doe eyes at John all day? Yeah. And also, I may decide to get out with your blessing. Or Yes. Like, <laughs> get out with your blessing where I'll carry on guessing. <laughs> but is it okay with you if I leave? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's very like the get back interaction between Paul and, it is. and George, where George is basically saying, look, I'll play if you want me to play. I won't play if you want me to play. Just tell me what you want me to do already. As the days stand up on end, you've got me wondering how I lost your friendship, but I see it in your eyes. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, if I didn't know, and for a long time, I didn't know this was about Paul, like, when I'm listening to it as a kid, I'm sure my dad told me and I just forgot or something, but... I never really knew that side of it for a long time. So it's not, you know, I don't love this song because 
I hate Paul. I think I was entranced by the beautiful music. It's such a beautiful melody. It, and by the way, you know, this has some of those Here Comes the Sun rhythms in it, where he'll break it down into groups of three for a while. That's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So that's that little Indian thing that he yes. kind of imported into Here Comes the Sun. And he, he does it a few times in this album, but very prominently as as a main feature of the verse of this song. So I think I was just so entranced by all of that, you know, listening to it as a younger person. I wasn't catching how devastating the lyrics are. For me, it was the guitar that hit me first. Obviously, I mean, it's the thing that opens the thing, but it's so... I mean, it's just expertly captured. I mean, you could throw all kinds of shade at Phil Spector all day, and I'm inclined to, but the way that this track was cut, I'm not sure if this was Phil or George, but good God, that it's just, you. it's almost like you're in the room with that guitar. So, let's take the record off, put it back in the sleeve. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, let's, we're not flipping anything. <laughs> let's, let's pull record two out of the sleeve. Put it on, drop the needle, and we're getting hit with another of the most All Things Must Pass sounding songs on All Things Must Pass, and that's Beware of Darkness. Watch out now, take Written at home in England, George says, during a period when he had some friends from the Radha Krishna temple saying things like, watch out for Maya. I like the melody. It's sort of strange. The lyrics are self-explanatory. And George leaves it at that. Maya being the cosmic illusion. In the letter which made Paul throw Ringo out of his house, I think George makes reference to Maya. (laughs) In that as well. I'm, <laughs> no kidding. Which I'm sure Paul really was interested in learning about in that moment. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling this song is about kind of not, kind of John and George, maybe, but also, I don't know. It's about superficiality generally, but it's about lurking bad intentions, and especially in show business, where there are a lot of them. Watch out now, take care, beware of falling swingers. I mean, that says it all right there. Yeah. It's like, hey, our generation was onto something, but if they lose their way, they're going down. I mean, this is right around the time where we were losing, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and all these people. I mean, Janis was dead by the time 
this record came out because as i recall she died while her letter featuring the recording of a happy birthday song she wrote for john lennon was still in the post which was october and this was released in december so yeah it's uh the swingers were fallen and now obviously he had written this prior to that but they were fallen fall of the swingers yeah. greedy leaders I guess, according to the keyboardist who played on this, Bobby Whitlock, the song was at least partially due to Harrison's Beatle bandmates and uh, Alan Klein and all of that stuff. Whitlock, who was staying at Friar Park at the time, cites, this is one of the several preoccupations that made up a day in the life of George Harrison, along with the stresses <laughs> of restoring the property that he had just bought, Friar Park and dealing with Phil Spector's idiosyncrasies <laughs> and indulging Hare Krishna <laughs> devotees. Uh, there's a lot going on in George's world at this time. Watch out now Take a beware Lyric at the end, they'll take you where you should not go, while weeping atlas cedars, they just want to grow. I saw this explained, I think it was Simon Ling who explained that weeping atlas cedars just go for the light. They famously like will arrange themselves to get to the top and go for the light. And I think that's, you know, those of us who are enlightened yeah. have to find the light and if you're not careful, people will drag you down into darkness, right. especially in show business. And I'm sure top of mind for him was literally weeping Atlas Cedars, because mm -hmm. it was at this time, as I mentioned, you know, he was starting to discover what would become a lifelong hobby slash release slash <laughs> preoccupation, which was gardening with Friar Park. I mean, he literally transformed those grounds, like moving massive hills here and there. It was a, a constant work of art for him to arrange that nature. Yeah, And so having these nature metaphors, if they are metaphors, and they probably are, was probably due to the fact that it was just top of mind for him. But, you know, it probably has a lot to do with his religion anyway. This also has one of the best rhymes on the album, soft shoe shufflers and unconscious sufferer. <laughs> Shuffler and sufferer is a hell of a rhyme. <laughs> Kudos. Wow. Hats off, yeah. George. <laughs> Holy cow. In the same song that mentions Maya and weeping Atlas, <laughs> how, how are you going to top this song? <laughs> and very complex harmonically up to this point. I mean, compared to some of what George was doing at this time, you can see the path ahead for him in the chord progressions in this song. Maybe it was an I Me Mine. He makes comments about it being a strange melody, but I like it. And to me, it's not a strange melody, but I know what he means. It's chromatic. And the chord changes don't go quite where you think they're gonna. It starts out in one place and very adeptly wanders to another key center. Yeah. Featuring some beautiful drumming from Ringo on this one. 
he holds it down, plays to the song, does his beetly duty, you know. But it's uh, does his beetly duty. It's nice, you know. <laughs> I treasure those Toodles tunes, you know. <laughs> now what you sitting there, seeing the passersby all stuck, like you have no place to go. But there's so much they don't know about apple stuff. Stood around the years, see my smiles and touch my tears. Now it's been a long, long time, and now you've been on my mind, my apples ghost. Apples ghost, apples ghost, how I love you, how I love you. Apple scruffs. Another favorite of mine when I was a kid, I wanted to tell you this. Um, when I was maybe nine, ten, my dad made me a tape, a mixtape, called The Beatles' Talkin' Song. And it was all of the songs he had compiled where the Beatles are bitching at each other on records. Oh, wow. <laughs> and anything Beatle-related. And so, I was exposed at t- ten years old to, like, Dear Friend and God and how do you sleep and all these and he included apple scruffs on it because it does intrinsically have to do with beetle era even though it's not a hate song like those it is a love song to beetle fans to the devoted beetle fans who would wait outside of apple and they weren't the kind that would mob you they were the kind that were there to support comfort and make you feel appreciated and I guess George felt so indebted to these fans because over the years when they detected that he wasn't feeling good, they knew him so well and he wasn't feeling good or in a good place or something like that, they wouldn't come up and ask him for autographs. They would, you know, say, hey, are you okay? You want to talk about it? Like, so, I mean, that's awesome, you know. At, yeah. What a, what a special relationship for a fan to have with the artist that they admire. Yeah, there's a... A rather beautiful comment about this by Simon Lang. It's part of the unique phenomenon of rock music that its fans are not content to be mere consumers, but need to be part of the experience. As with so much pop culture, this was virtually invented by the whole Beatles saga. The cynical view is that the cult of fandom is just another device through which the industry fools the unsuspecting punter into buying more product. It's notoriously difficult to keep the public interested in a musical act for more than five years. However, if they feel loyal to the artist, they will provide a core audience for years to come. The dissonance comes with fans unable to draw a line between reality and illusion. And he goes on to say, basically, that this is a relationship that Harrison has with his fans that he won't have once John Lennon's been killed and he himself has been attacked in his home, this is sort of the last moment where George will feel this way. He basically says, ultimately, if Apple Scruffs conveys even a hint of a true picture of the relationship this star once had with some of his fans, it shows how much has been lost. That is sad to think about. It's interesting that the Beatles were still very open with fans, generally speaking. Like, you know, Lennon let that guy into his home. Yeah, and imagine. And imagine. And I mean, he may have been doing that for the cameras, whatever. But regardless, I mean, that was a gutsy move. Or you think about the Hey Jude video, where that local drunk, they made sure that he was there and prominent and behind Paul's piano <laughs> when they recorded the Hey Jude video and stuff, which is really, really funny. If you've not listened to the um, the Paul commentary on the Hey Jude video on that uh, OnePlus 
Blu-ray. It's worth your time. Take a listen. But yeah, they knew these people really well. I mean, this goes back to the Cavern days, you know, where they were <laughs> they they knew those fans really, really well. One wonders how well. Wink, wink. They took a lot of their set from those kinds of requests and things and feedback, and you know, they were kind of the, this group that harnessed fandom in, in some really beautiful ways, and then ultimately it turned really ugly. And it surprises me actually that Paul to this day is still pretty hands on with fans which is kind of nice to know that the sour experiences didn't break him in that regard. Yeah. Some interviewer was talking with him. I forget who it was, but it was after Lennon was killed. And they asked you, has that changed your life? Do you do things you would normally have done differently because he was killed in that way? And Paul mm. said, and it was really an illuminating, and I know we're not talking about Paul right now, but I think this is relevatory. It was an illuminating quote where he says, if the roles were reversed and it was me that was killed, I don't think John would have changed what he did. That's kind of a nice way to think about it. We can't know, but it does sound right. So <laughs> the fan stuff turned ugly, but there's, I think the, the beauty far outweighs the unfortunate major stains on that. Another nice thing about this song is that it's only two people on the track, George and Mal Evans, who provides the tapping sound. And I find that to be wonderful. Yeah, some great background vocals here by George himself. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of, it's a stripped down track, but there's a little guitar orchestration going on here. Yes. Very nice. Should we roll it? Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, Let It Roll. George said of this one in I Me Mind, this is a piece of personal indulgence inspired by an eccentric lawyer from the 1800s who I have come to know by becoming the proprietor of his Victorian folly, my home. Sir Frank was also the authority on medieval gardens. Phil Spector said that if I were to change the lyrics, I'd have a few covers of this song. But those words were written because that's what it was. So that's awesome. It's We're talking about his Friar Park home. This is kind of about it a little it is yeah i mean it basically takes you through the grounds shows you some of the sort of landmarks now there are some mysterious things in here i don't know what cool and shades is and i don't know who joan and molly are do you no i have no idea <laughs> i mean the lyric is let it roll 
through the caves. Now I know what the caves are because there were these caves on this estate. Yeah. Ye long walks of cool and shades. And it's capitalized cool with an E and shades. Also capitalized cool and shades. And then later in the song, fool's illusions everywhere. Joan and Molly sweep the stairs. Housekeepers? Must been. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's solved. I don't know. Cool and shades though. I'm not sure. Unless that is Frankie Crisp's family or something. Well, I'm sure that someone will write in, or maybe lots of people, for years to come and and tell us (laughs) what that is. (laughs) So this is another modest production, non-Wall of Sound production, also in a somewhat country vein. We have Pete Drake once again on pedal steel. Melodically, it's really beautiful. I just wish it did a little bit more than it does. It really just repeats the same gorgeous but limited bit of melody over and over with the descending scale instrumental material in between. But it's beautiful for what it is. Let it roll down through the caves long walks and cool and shades Through you would even Simon Lang writes, The soundtrack to this slice of Harrison's new bucolic life in sleepy Henley-on-Thames is an ethereal and echoey version of the band's minimalist melodicism. The ectoplasmic Sir Frank Crisp floats around this tour of Harrison's Friar Park home in the shape of Pete Drake's pedal steel. one of my favorites awaiting on you all a strangely angry spiritualist yeah strangely disdainful you don't need no loving you don't need no <laughs> bedpan but i get his point you don't need shit just chant the names of the lord i mean he's making fun of lennon there right with the i know he is but he's you know so he's starting with a swipe at a friend and and his wife and <laughs> and a, a reference to a bedpan and a horoscope or microscope. To see the mess that you're in. You don't need whatever crap you're into. You just need the crap I'm into. <laughs> and I'm sorry, the lyric here says you don't need... Okay, this is the CD that says you don't need a love-in. Yeah, and the lyric on the original LP says you don't need a love-in. But Am I crazy or does he say you don't need no love-in? I thought he said no, but... Yeah, I, and I like it better as no. There's one where he's doing a vernacular and it's a whole thing. It's not like the it's you that decides. <laughs> this is very different. <laughs> Yoko was famously obsessed with astrology, and it's funny, the story goes that 
when she was picking the musicians for Double Fantasy, she demanded to know everyone's birthday so that her astrologer could make sure that the stars were right, which is wild. And they had a, <laughs> the Lennons had a personal astrologer who wrote um, what I'm to understand is quite a scandalous book about <laughs> John and Yoko and their adventures in astrology in the 70s and how they were using it for like everything at the time. So I see that as another Lennon dig. But what's funny, when I was a kid, teenager, it may have been listening to it, the live cut in the concert for Bangladesh, which I'm surprised he did because it's a song that's a real mouthful. There's a line in it that says, and the Pope owns 51% of General Motors and the stock exchange is the only thing he's qualified to quote us. And at the time I was like, that's the most punk rock, like badass, like screw you (laughs) line I had heard. Like I was blew my mind i was just like wow it's like standing ovation time george that was one of the big things that struck me as a kid remember we talked about like being in the sixth grade or whatever summer after sixth grade listening to this record and trying to make sense of this rock star talking about god so much and then (laughs) he comes along and just takes a swipe at the pope (laughs) and it's like well what which is it <laughs> like I, I that's too complicated for me to understand at that point in my life you know the pope's not the real deal you know <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's uh, bring it all the way up to one of the last songs he ever did before he died, Horse to the Water. He says something to the effect of, preacher out there talking about Satan. Could be that he knows him. He acts like he's possessed. I say, why don't we talk about God and realization for a change? And he says, don't have time for that. You must hear the evils of fornication. Yeah. He's talking about that pretty much till the day he died. There's also that great song, P2 Vatican Blues, where he takes aim at the Vatican again and church and all of this. And I think he just hates authoritarians. And that's goes back to school and church is an awful lot like school. His church is within. It is true that the original LP and the 2001 CD omit the lines about the Pope huh. in the lyric sheet. <laughs> not, on, not on the song, but in the lyric sheet. Huh. I'm looking at them both side by side. Neither of them have the the bit about the Pope. Now, I mean, mine lists it. I mean, that has the complete lyric. And it's, of course, sung in the song. Do you have the original LP in front of you? Yeah, I'm looking at the original LP lyric sleeve. And I'm also, right next to that, I'm holding the 2001 CD lyrics. Now, this is complete guesswork on my part. But I would guess Capital would have been more inclined to say, don't list that. In America. Well, they probably just went with the attitude that they were going to simply reprint exactly what was on the album. And since the album omitted it, the CD omits it. Because there are some mistakes on the album lyrics. Tiny ones, like that thing with A versus No. And those are all reprinted precisely. So I think it's just a precise reprint of the original LP lyrics 
but the original LP lyrics, I am confirming, do not have the lines about the Pope printed in the lyric sheet. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think that could have been a capital thing. And because it's Apple, I mean, the album I'm looking at is an Apple. No, but Capital was still their distributor in America. So okay. if there was an English version of the record as opposed to whatever was sold in North America, perhaps there's that change. I mean, we know America tends to be more uptight about that sort of thing. You don't um, say. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lennon, I mean, that's why I think he um, pushed through Battle of John and Yoko. There was some note he wrote to somebody saying before they notice that the song says crucify, just put it out, get it done, do it quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, now I don't know that, but yeah, this is a, uh, another grumpy song, but I, one of my favorites on the record, I just, I, I love that it is so, and I don't know, it's kind of punk to me. This song is a real punk rock kind of sentiment. I can see it. It's almost like proto post punk. Sure. <laughs> proto post inverted. <laughs> color corrected <laughs> well post-punk because it's religious sure <laughs> so it's a it's a harbinger of what things will be like after punk there you but go. influenced by punk track all things must pass ah let's skip it i don't need to talk about this one no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) second i thought you were serious yeah not my style not my kind of song (laughs) uh that's funny hey real talk what do you think that beetle version would have sounded like because they weren't going to do that on the roof but you know if they stayed together this would have surfaced you know it wouldn't sound as good as this no no I think the Beatles version would have been, maybe, I mean, if it had been done at that time, it would have been too rock and rolly and too bluesy. Interesting. It wouldn't have had this sweeping, grandiose folk song quality that this has. Certainly, had George Martin done the arrangement, he wouldn't have done this arrangement that John Barham did. No, Barham goes over the top, but in a way that you can almost see the clouds in your head when he does that, that really big, high note thing i mean it really does almost feel as though you're looking at clouds parting pretty sure that's the pedal steel that does that high note oh yeah. i didn't know that i thought that was i think that's pedal steel doing a bend up to the high note but then there's also this thing where it's either george on slide or the pedal steel or both combined with the big brass bum 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 thing yeah that I think really gives this song a distinctive flavor. That combination of that stately and very direct brass part with pedal steel or whatever, if it's George on slide, I apologize for not knowing, but it's quite a sound. 
the Beatles wouldn't have done that. They would have done something more Beatle-y. This is very George. I think the one thing we can agree on is they were never going to have a version that was good enough for the roof for this because this song <laughs> is not that kind of song. It's not no. like uh, Long and Winding Road or something, which can exist in both realms, the sweeping version and the sort of slinky bar version that McCartney always wanted it to be. This one, it's begging for a studio, a proper studio production. Now, I, I might take some issue with saying that Certainly it would have been different, but I almost always err on the side of George Martin when it comes to things. And so I have to believe that he would have heard that, especially last episode, we talked about Within You, Without You. Mm -hmm. And the orchestration George Martin does on that song is big, it is sweeping, and it is complementary to the tune. So what I'm saying is I, I think he was at least capable of it. And I would have loved to have heard those harmonies. I think those harmonies mm. would have been really pretty, especially with Paul and his capabilities augmenting uh, George. But I agree. Um, this well, maybe is... I'm too quick. To, I mean, you say all that, and I start thinking, yeah, George Martin orchestrating and Paul and singing. <laughs> like, yeah, it sounds pretty good, man. <laughs> you say all that, but I just think there's something very, very personal and very George about this record of All Things Must Pass. It would just be so much more about the Beatles, and it would be more about George Martin. It would be a big Beatles song. This is a George... Harrison song. And an intensely personal song for other reasons, too. I mean, his mother was dying at the time. You know, death and all of that and, and practicing for death and things is a part of his religion. And again, 27, his mother's going to die at 27. That's young. It's really young. And this is almost like putting his religion to the test in a, in a way, because if he was too attuned to the material world, he would think that that's the end. But his religion tells him it's not. So there's that Pisces fish again. So I think he was, maybe this song was working some of that out. What do you think this line is, none of life's strings can last? Is that a reference to like threads and quilts and old clothes? And, or what is that? None of life's strings. I've always misheard that to be none of life's dreams may last. So I couldn't tell you. Do you think it is life's dreams and this is a misprint in the lyrics? It's like I say, again, it's a perfect reprint from the LP. The LP also has life's strings. If it is strings, it could be a puppeteer's strings or something like the, ah, the actual, oh, your okay. soul pulling your meat puppet around. We just came up with two separate interpretations. Is that, does <laughs> <laughs> he want to be unclear? So we do that. Or is it like a little vague? It's funny that I love this song so much, but I, I do find myself stumbling a bit on the lyric at times. I'm of two minds about it because there's some lines that really kind of make me think that it sounds a little unfinished, like lyrically, but then cumulatively, I'm like, yeah, but it works in the context of the song, so it doesn't bother me at all. And I know I'm getting really nitpicky at a song that is obviously a um like a classic, you know, but you know, he repeats, it's not always going to be this gray a bunch. And I always felt that that, while it's, I guess you could interpret it as effective as being a constant refrain, I always felt that that could use maybe some variation. Daylight is good at arriving at the right time. He it's, says it three times, yeah. And I like it a lot the first time. Not always going to be this gray, right? As a, you're, you're expecting not always going to be this way. And when he or, says gr gray, or great. It's, it's cool. 
at yeah, some point great? he could okay, say yeah. great and sub. I don't know. I mean, that's again, these are all nitpicks and stuff. Oh yeah, it's not always going to be this great. That's actually a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> we should write in, man. We should totally write in. The <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, great moment in Get Back, where Lennon gives him a mind can blow those clouds away. And Lennon makes a joke of it. He's like, he says, mind can blow those clouds away, get all psychedelic-like. And he's joking. You know, he's being typical sardonic. And George is like, that's a good idea. And then George is like furiously writing it down. <laughs> it's fucking great, John. Keep it coming. Great song. Interesting placement for the title track of your album. Side three, last track. Yes. Interesting choice. So you flip the album over and you're on side four, you drop the needle and you get I Dig Love. So we're flipping it to side four, and we're loving Dig on side four. Is this some kind of a free love song? You know, yes. I think there is, Ugh, we discussed gross. already. <laughs> well, you know, we've discussed this on this album before. George uh, had that side of him, and I think this is another one of those that was, you know, a little not overtly suggestive, just... I think this was another one that was not covertly suggestive. Although you could interpret it as an all-you-need-is-love style, you know, I-dig-love-hippie kind of thing, I suppose. You could. You definitely could. I don't know about in any port. That sounds a little... (laughs) 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 That sounds like a disease control problem, but I don't know. (laughs) Now, I love this song. I unabashedly love this song. And as a teenager, I wasn't thinking of the innuendo or any of that. But as a teenager getting to know All Things Must Pass, this was actually a highlight for me on the record because it's got this wonderful little groove. And I just love those drum fills, those echoey, reverb-drenched drum fills that add so much to the song which is Ringo and Jim Gordon I guess they were both playing on this track but it does definitely sound singularly Ringo if Jim is playing with Ringo I think Jim is doing a Ringo impression I agree yeah but that is the highlight for me that it's like um, almost 
a drum equivalent of a guitar solo, but it's not a drum solo. It's just sort of like fill as part of the song. And as Ringo always says, the fill was on the art, you know, like that's where he expresses himself on the drums aside from things like backbeat and stuff or, you know, patterns. He always talks about the fills as being very important to him. So I just love that the fills are front and center on this tune. It's got a nice sound on the the chromatic thing. You've got, I guess, piano, electric piano. There's a guitar in there. I don't know what else. I'm looking at the instrumentation here and it's three guitars. Well, who knows how many overdubs of guitar, but three guitarists and Gary Wright, electric piano, Billy Preston, organ, Bobby Whitlock, piano. So three keyboards there. And then the two drummers, it's like orchestral blues or something. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny to me that uh, you have such a gathering of musicians on this and yet it sounds so simple <laughs> yeah if it's mostly you know doubling parts then it doesn't need to be complex to be big i think simon lang referred to this one as george's version of why don't we do it in the road yeah right <laughs> <laughs> but regardless i love this song i don't know why maybe it's just because of that cool ringo fill i mean it's got it's got wonderful ringo moments across this whole record which is so funny to me that he just really like kept going with the great drumming throughout 1970, despite the band falling apart, you know, on Plastic Ono Band and on this record. Hey, speaking of Simon Lang, he's not particularly easy on this one. He says, a sassy guitar solo and a particularly strong vocal performance almost saved the day on a track that lacks the expressive clout of the rest of the disc. But even harsher than that, he says... It's a brief throwback to the latter days of the Beatles when the group appeared to assume that any freeform drivel that they uttered would be of interest as art. <laughs> wow. Damn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, Simon Ling does a little bit more, uh, a little more editorializing than Luca Parasi did in the, the equivalent Macca book. I don't care. I don't, or should I say, we're on a George podcast. I don't care um, if he likes this one or not, because I love it, actually. And I don't think you have to have something incredibly deep for it to be in, important. And I would put this one maybe to Simon Lang's like, point. I would maybe put this one in the same category as like Old Brown Shoe or For You Blue for or you something, blue. Yeah. where it's... Not the simplest song in the world, but you know what? Those are some of my favorite George songs. So, I mean, it's it, it doesn't have to be spiritual and say a bunch to have it resonate with you, you know? Yeah, right. And look, this is, you know, sandwiched, uh, I would say sandwiched between, but actually it's it's in here among some pretty heavy material. I mean, we just listened to All Things Must Pass. We're about to hear The Art of Dying. <laughs> and after that, <laughs> shortly after that, Hear Me, Lord, you know, maybe I Dig Love is a nice little contrast, you know, before we get into more heavy stuff. Can I tell you a secret, Chris? I think this is my favorite song on this side of the record. I'm okay with that, actually. Um, I don't think it's my favorite on this side, but I'm okay with that. It's a nice palate cleanser. It's a piece of pickled ginger. You know? I could see that. Which brings us to... The Art of Dying.
pretty heavy title sounds more ominous than it is. Actually, musically it's a bit ominous sounding too, but the lyrics are not as ominous as the title suggests. The lyrics are a bit more hopeful than that, actually, in some ways. When I first heard that title, I thought it sounded like a kung fu movie. You know? <laughs> the Art of Dying. <laughs> yeah. It has that 70s black exploitation slash kung fu movie style. I don't even know what that um, effect is, but maybe you do. But there's. The Wawa. Is that, yeah. is that just the Wawa? Is that just him? I think it's some Wawa, yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know that. But it's an onslaught of music. There's a frenetic bigness and urgency to the music on this one that I should like, but this is another one for me where the production is too overblown and too thick for me to really appreciate. And maybe that's why I like, I dig love and songs like, you know, run of the mill and things because I prefer this record when it calms down a little bit or Mm. finds a groove with space to move around. And in this one, it's so wall of soundy that I I find it difficult to penetrate. I, I don't know how do you feel about Art of Dying? To me, it's the most beatle song on the album. Wow, really? It sounds, well, it sounds a lot like Think for Yourself to me. Sure. Or maybe a little like Blue Jay Way. I mean, it's that sort of minor key type thing with the very straight rhythm melody. You know, the song may have been written as far back as 66, yes. I think. Yeah. So that also makes me think, yeah, it's sort of Beatle George song. Right when he was getting into the whole Indian thing, because it's a religious tune. Um, yes. And I, I'm not going to read this whole quote because it's very long, but George does have a lot to say about it in I Me Mine. He does. And, and I'll just read the first little bit here, which is kind of addresses the whole thing, which is everybody is worried about dying, but the cause of death, which most of us can't figure out unless they are diseased, is birth. So if you don't want to die, don't get born. So the art of dying is when... Somebody can consciously leave the body at death as opposed to falling down, dying without knowing what's going on. And then he goes on about yogis and things. So what he's saying there is kind of how he lived, really, because we know that he was very concerned about practicing for death. And in that wonderful Martin Scorsese documentary, which I feel didn't focus enough on the solo years, but that's beside the point. You get that wonderful Olivia interview, his wife Olivia interview at the end where she talks about how important it was that he rehearse his death and get it right. And in the end, he was able to have that. He, he rehearsed and he was able to time it out where he was able to leave his body on his terms. And when this was recorded, his mother had died. And so right. death was foremost on his mind, which I think we've talked about before in this episode. Who can say? It's been so long. Um, (laughs) But she was similarly, I I hate to use his term, but disease. You know, she had cancer, which is what he got him to. At least I think she had cancer. Pretty sure she did. And I don't know what her death experience was like, but I'm sure for a young George, again, not even 30 years old, looking at that with the religious beliefs he had must have had a really profound impact on him. And maybe that's where the bigness of this production comes from the, the over the top frantic urgency to it, because I'm 
you know, maybe George felt that urgency himself at that time, seeing what his mother was going through. This idea of the art of dying and that you have to be fully conscious, fully awake in a sense as you die and I guess experience it fully, that will release you from the cycle of reincarnation. There's a, a lyric here in the last verse, there will come a time when most of us return here brought back by our desire to be a perfect entity. So in other words, you know, being reborn over and over to get it right. Right. And if you can perfect the art of dying, you won't come back. You'll be released. Right. Into yeah. nirvana or, or what have you. It's tough to think about, you know, uh, obviously not a lot. The subject of death is something uncomfortable for many. Although I always got the impression that it was actually a source of comfort for George the idea that he could do something proactively to help himself in those moments, which you feel so out of control. Right. Well, I look forward to being, you know, very happy on Demerol when I go. <laughs> don't, don't, I'm not looking to be conscious when that shit happens. <laughs> uh, it's a heavy tune. It's a heavy tune. And it's a heavy tune. Maybe yeah. that's why I like I Dig Love, because the rest of this record is really, really heavy. <laughs> it is. It's nonstop heavy from here on out. Yeah. So, isn't it a pity? Version 2. Isn't it a pity? Isn't it a shame? I guess as a song, there's nothing to add, but it is a very, you know, noticeably different vibe on this version. Any thoughts about the differences? I was struggling to pick one that I liked more than the other and kept coming back to, there didn't really need to be two on here. Mm -hmm. Although I did read something, I don't remember if it was Lang or not, but there was some thinking that because of the two versions appearing on the same record this one on side four and um, the first version on side one that there was a sort of a book ending or like a um, not a concept album kind of nest to it but at the very least some sort of full circle kind of thing happening here with this song being there honestly i don't really have a preference i think maybe this one more if for anything more than there's more guitar soloing and i think george's voice sounds really nice on this version and it's a little more open than the other spectory one but i also read that george himself was unhappy with that first more spectory one and decided to do a different version why he opted to put both on the record i really don't know i always thought it was a little dig at beatles actually and maybe this is me reading into it but 
this is his way of saying, see, look, you can do a song a couple different ways. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> you know, don't tell me I can't play guitar and hate Jude. Like, and maybe that's me reading into it, but whether that was his intent or not, it certainly does prove that point that yes, you can do songs in multiple different ways and have them work on their own merits. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I'm going to do a little revisionism here, I would say the obvious choice would be to cut off the last two minutes of the first version and put that here. Oh. If you want to have the reprise, right. you've already got an extended vamp to fade, uh, effectively, on the first version. Couldn't you just save some of that for side four? Yeah. But I do like this version. It's a little more mid-70s sounding than early 70s sounding. Yeah. There's something about the production on it, something about the guitars. Uh, we have Tony Ashton on piano here, and again, Bobby Whitlock on organ. There's something about the way the keyboards sound on this. It feels just like mellow mid-70s in a way to me. Sure. It feels more mid-70s than some of George's mid-70s stuff, which sounds like another universe, but we'll get there. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think it's okay. I mean, I think I could go with either version, but I do think that the first version is more in keeping with the grandeur of the album. Sure. And so I could kind of see going with that bigger wall of sound version. Which was the one that was included on the My Sweet Lord B-side, which I think was a double A, actually, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, was it? One of the songs identified early on as as a hit single, Mm -hmm. that My Sweet Lord, What Is Life. I don't know if I would pick this one as a hit single per se, but it is certainly a great song. Of the many songs that kind of sound like it on this record, I think this is definitely the strongest, you know? Mm-hmm. I could see All Things Must Pass as a single before Isn't It a Pity. But, like, I could see people listening to that, and you know, in their cars in 1970 more readily than this. So yeah, good track overall, just a little superfluous, and you know, I would rather have had one of the songs we'll discuss later, probably, than this. Chris, would you call this, in your estimation, as a recording artist yourself, would you call this padding, or would you call this purposeful? Purposeful padding. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) You you sliced that baby right in half, didn't you? (laughs) It's purposeful in the sense that the reprise does make sense to me. The same way that Ram On does, but Ram On is a little fragment, you know? What is that, 50 seconds, the little Ram On reprise? Whereas, you know, this is five minutes nearly. As we discussed earlier, we're up to 12 minutes of this song on this album. I guess at this point, in for a penny, in for a pound. If I wouldn't call it padding partly because <laughs> he did have so many other songs. Yes. Like, why fall back on a reprise when you've got all these songs you could use? What a wonderful point. I would have taken several of the ones we're going to talk about in the bonus features over this a second time. So that brings us to, finally, the end of the main album, Hear Me Lord, track 21. 
Before I postulate, I would like to hear your take on Hear Me, Lord. To me, it's the most gospel-sounding thing on the album. Mm. Much more gospel-sounding than My Sweet Lord. Uh, more gospel-sounding, certainly, than Awaiting on You All. So it's the, it's the big gospel finale here. Both musically and lyrically, though, it, it leaves a lot to be desired. It's a little underdone. Yeah. You know, the lyrics are very simple, and the music's a, a bit repetitive. That's my take. Yeah. I, I think we fall in a similar place. I never really liked this song, actually. There's a, a bootleg that was released, oh, maybe 15 years ago or so, which has all of the different various guitar takes of this and Art of Dying and all of these other um, guitar-heavy tracks on the record. And I find that more interesting to listen to, actually, than the song itself. I find this one a little preachy in a bad way, although I don't think he's being, like, you know, uh, hear me. It's a personal plea on his part. He's not begging other people to do it. It's just, like, for me, the sarcasm or humor present in some of the other tracks on this record, as it pertains to religion and things, is more compelling to me than this one, which is very sincere. Very straight-faced, yeah. And it reminds me actually more of, you know, an early clue to the new direction. This room really could have fit well on living in the material world, in my estimation. Oh, yeah. Could have slotted right in there. You'd never know the difference. I also think it sounds a little bit like the gospel-y stuff or soulful stuff on Extra Texture a little, although stronger than that. But I, yeah, I never really like this. I do love the middle eight, though. That bit yes. where he goes at both ends of the road to the left and the right, above and below us, like that. I was about to say, above and below us, that part's really cool. The band stops and you just have the background vocal. Yeah, that's really great. And maybe that's the contrast at play there. The big production drops out and you get that moment of breath before the next thing, which is kind of just where I fall on some of this production. Like, I need a moment to breathe. In comics, there's panel borders for a reason. <laughs> Your eye can take a break before you move on to the next thing, and it gives you that bit of pacing and contrast and stuff. And sometimes with the Spectre stuff, it's just so overblown and so at 11 the whole time that I find it overwhelming to listen to. I will say that I always, including when I first got to know this album as a kid, I always saw Side 4 as kind of slowly running out of steam. Mm. Like the album, instead of coming to this glorious conclusion, seems to kind of just peter out. Now, this song is going for it production-wise, like you just said, but because it's kind of a dud as a song... Dud is the wrong word, but it, it's not one of the more outstanding bits of songcraft here. Maybe that's the reason the Beatles didn't pick it up. This was one that was written that first week at Twickenham and attempted with the Beatles, but they, they didn't ultimately um, take it up. Actually kind of interesting, and going back to Simon Lang for a moment, he had a nice quote about this one. How many millionaire rock stars use a song to beg forgiveness from God or anyone else? <laughs> there are a lot of pop songs that have some version of forgive me baby in them so i don't know about that <laughs> you hear that you're full There's of a, shit lang yeah <laughs> it's a lot of forgive me going on and but not asking god for forgiveness for sure so that's it that's the rest of the songs 
we put that record back in its sleeve and we take out the record that I'm prepared to vigorously defend over what I assume to be an onslaught from you. Apple Jam. No, it won't be an onslaught. I just don't have a ton to say. So this will be like where, you know, you kind of just turned Wonderwall over to me for a while. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to just kind of turn this over to you, bro. (laughs) And take it. Join us next time for part three of our discussion of George Harrison's All Things Must Pass.